Good morning, Parkway Church. How are my waterlogged friends doing today? So good to see you guys, whether you're gathered at Parkway Victoria or Parkway Lone Tree, or what I'm guessing is a record attendance at Parkway Online. We are so glad you're here. You say, Mike, you forgot one campus. Well, our family in Port Lavaca isn't able to meet today because a transformer blew near their building, and they're down for the count today. So if you're joining us online, Port Lavaca, welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mike. I'm the senior pastor here. And it is my privilege today to continue our series, Radical, where we're walking through the Bible, the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, to see the radical decisions and the radical changes that Jesus brings to our life. Last week, I began with a fan favorite. I talked about radical purity. And I said something like this in the middle of the message. I said, if I convicted you, or if you've been convicted, then I've done my job. And that was the, kind of the push last week is to say, you know what, we want to look at what God's view of purity is, both for married people and single adults, everyone. Let's see what God says about pure passions and pure actions and pure relationships. If you missed it, I encourage you to go online and listen. Today, we're going to talk about some radical decisions. And it reminds me of a story recently. I was uh, picking my kids up from school, and I, sometimes we'd go get treats at Speedy Stop, right? Well, I made a radical decision recently to start eating better. And so instead of getting my normal treat at Speedy Stop, which is the king-size Hershey bar with almonds, oh, that is so good. I wish it was really that big. It's really like that big, right? Back in the day, I used to get Reese's peanut butter cups, like king-size. That'd be four peanut butter cups, but now I'm allergic to peanut butter, so now I just get the king size. They call it king size almond bar with Hershey's, right? But I decided I'm going to eat better. So instead of going to the candy aisle with the chips, I decided to go to the, to the rolling hot dog bar because I'm eating better. You ever been to one of those rolling hot dog bars? There's that one hot dog that looks like it's been on there for two months. Don't ever get that hot dog. Then, I mean, this was not like, this is like the, the I mean, this is a, a grand hot dog rolling bar. They had like taquitos on there. They had, um, they had hamburgers on there rolling. I'm like, I don't think that's a hamburger, but I'm not going to eat it anyway. So I decided since I was eating better, I would get a hot dog. And then because I'm eating better, I would also get a hot dog with cheese injected into it. Like we used to eat in junior high. Because I'm eating better, I didn't get the two buns that you can pull out of the tray underneath this hot dog roll. And my daughter was sitting watching me, and she had the most disgusted look on her face. Like she had never been more disappointed in me in her life. And so I've got these two hot dogs in the tray, and I load it up with mustard, and I'm walking out all proud of myself because I'm eating better. And my daughter looks at me, and she says, you know, you really need to make some better decisions with your life. <laughs> and so I grab the first dog and I dip it in the hot dog and I take, or dip it into the mustard and I take a bite. Do that about three times until the biggest blob of mustard falls from the hot dog onto the light blue sweater that I'm wearing. And she says, see, I told you, you got to work on your decisions. <laughs> well, today that's what we're going to talk about. And I think you people have got some decisions to work on too. You guys decided to come to church when there was like a purple radar hanging over your house. You heard a lightning strike and you were like, one, 1,000, two, 1,000. Okay, that's far enough. 
I'll go to church. I mean, you guys came to church in the middle of, you know, just craziness. So we're going to work on our decisions today. And we're going to do it from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you brought your Bible, you can open up with me there. We've got an outline for you in the handout you received. You can also follow along in the Parkway app. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to see Paul deal with the moderation mindset that permeates our society. And he, he writes this to us, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. Say, Mike, isn't that the exact same passage you preached from last week? Nope. Last week I preached in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and Paul said everything is possible, everything's permitted, but not everything is beneficial. He said everything is permitted, but, not every, but I won't be mastered by anything. Remember last week when it came to purity, I challenged you to make decisions that are good in the short term and the long run. Because Paul, when he told us in 1 Corinthians 6 that you're free to do whatever you want, but not everything's good for you. You're free to do everything you want, but you shouldn't be mastered by anything. He made a hard turn to talk about personal purity. Well, in 1 Corinthians 10, the second time that he gives us this grid for making decisions that honor God, he says, everything's permitted, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permitted, but not everything is constructive. So you are free to do what you want, believer in Jesus Christ, but not everything is beneficial for you. You are free to do whatever you want, but not everything is constructive. Not everything builds your life. There are some ways that you can use your Christian freedom that actually tear your life down instead of building your life up. They're not constructive for you. This week in Arkansas, I think I'm starting a blog. This week in Arkansas, there's always a story from Arkansas. <laughs> this week in Arkansas, two men were arrested and charged with aggravated assault of one another. Here's what they did. They made this plan where both of them would put on bulletproof vests and then they would shoot each other to see if it hurt. Now, I don't know how much liquid courage they had leading up to this endeavor, but they went through with it. And apparently, it does hurt when you get shot with a bulletproof vest on. And one of them went to the hospital because it hurt so badly. And then they were both arrested because of this scheme that they had. Not everything's constructive, friends. Can we agree with that? Can we use the extreme example of the boys in Arkansas? But then also look at our own lives and say, there are some things that we do that we're free to do. But they're not constructive. They don't build me up. They tear me down. Like, I'm not certain that we should have put those guys in jail for shooting each other. I'm almost like we should just release them and clean up the gene pool a bit in Arkansas. Right? I, I don't know. But, but they paid a price for their bad decision. So in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says you got to make some decisions about your purity differently based on what you're free to do and based on how it impacts you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, when Paul says you can do everything, but everything's not beneficial and you can do everything, but, you won't be but, but everything's not constructive. Then he makes a hard turn to where we put ourselves in life, to how we make decisions in light of us. 1 Corinthians uh, 10 verse 24. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. See, Paul was writing to a church, the church in Corinth, that was the ultimate consumer church. This church had 
wealth. This church had influence. This church had a position in their town. And yet their meetings were horrible. Their worship services, Paul told them he'd rather them not meet in worship because they were devouring each other. They were hurting each other more than they were being a blessing to each other or a blessing to the city around them. He said, I'd rather you not meet because you're devouring each other. This church was so self-centered that they allowed like the, this impurity to enter into their church like it was no problem. They all looked the other way and enjoyed it. See, this church was so self-centered that, that they weren't making any difference in the world around them. And so Paul writes and says, you know, what you're doing, you're free to do it, but it's not good for you. Paul says, what you're doing, you're free to do it, but it's not constructive. It's not building you up. It's actually tearing you down. He says, you know, you're free to do it, but you should not consider your own good, but the good of others. And this Bible verse uncovers the problem behind the problem with many of our decisions. The problem behind the problem with many of our decisions is that we use our freedom to only benefit us. We use our freedom to feed our wants, needs, and desires. And we don't consider the needs of others. We put ourselves first, God second, and others a distant 15th place in our life. But Paul's about to show us an entirely different way of making decisions where we are going to radically look at how we use our freedom and how that influences others. If you keep reading in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 25, Paul outlines what the issue is that he's dealing with in the life of the church here. He says, you should eat whatever meat is found in the marketplace and do it with a free conscience. If you're on the keto diet, if you're on the carnivore diet, I have just given you biblical evidence that it's okay for you to do it. Eat whatever you want in the meat market and do it with clearer conscience. Okay, I joke with you, but the issue here, I joke with you, but you don't laugh. I mean, that's just how it works. I get it. I get it. But the issue here wasn't about a diet plan. The issue here was some of that meat was offered to false gods. And some Christians wouldn't eat that meat because it was offered to false gods. And other Christians would eat that meat because it's just meat. My God is in charge of meat. It's just meat. So that was dividing people. That was hurting each other. And so Paul writes this, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. In the issues of conscience, where it's okay for you to do one thing because it's not wrecking your life and it's not mastering you and, and it's not hurting you. In those issues of freedom, in whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or how you work or how you live, do it all for the glory of God. Verse 32, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God. Let's pause right there. This word picture that Paul is laying out here is a, the, a stumbling block. Anything you put in front of someone that would cause them to trip up, cause them to fall. The Bible says that sin so easily entangles. And so what Paul is telling us to do here as Christians is don't let your actions become a lasso for the people around you to sin and to be hurt, to, to live lives that aren't constructive and best for them. And he says, whether they're Jew or Greek or of the church of God, whatever people type, 
whoever they are, you're going to adjust your actions to fit them. And each one of these groups had different rules, had different standards. Each one of these groups had different things that they allowed. But Paul says you are free to do everything, but not everything is beneficial. You're free to do everything, but everything isn't constructive. So consider other people before you consider yourselves. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, pay attention to the people around you, no matter who they are. Verse 33, even as I try and please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Paul makes it real clear that if he's gonna live a God-pleasing life, because he's not living for the approval of man, he's living for the approval of God. And because he's living for the approval of God, he lives well among people. He considers the needs of others. He's got a radical way of making decisions. I'm free to do anything I want, but not everything's beneficial. I'm free to do everything I want, but not everything's constructive. When you look at making decisions, as he's outlining here in 1 Corinthians 10, we begin this radical decision tree. We begin with God first. You can fill in that blank, first God. When you have a decision to make about moral issues, when you have a decision to make about ethical issues, when you have a decision to make about the direction and the patterns of your life, the first thing to consider is God. Now, you would think that that would come naturally to a Christian community, that we would consider God first and foremost in every decision. But we live in a world where it's me first. We live in a world where it's my wants, my needs, my desires above everything else. We live in a world that permits us to do whatever we want as long as we don't do it radically, as long as we don't take it to the extreme, as long as we're moderate in our actions, we're okay. But Paul says, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. So I'm gonna consider God first as I make decisions. And the question is this, is what I'm doing or is what I'm wanting to do? Is what I desire to do, is what I... I'm thinking about doing is what I'm praying about doing. Is that glorifying to God? And I've heard Christians make all kinds of crazy statements before. I've heard them say things that are in complete contrast to the word of God. You know, I've been praying and I think God wants me to do this. No, he doesn't. The Bible speaks directly against that issue. God's word will never, ever contradict his voice, and his voice will never, ever contradict his word. And so as we ask this question, are you truly seeking the glory of God, or are you just wanting God to baptize your sinfulness? Are you truly seeking the glory of God, or are you simply wanting God to give you permission to do what you want to do, even if it doesn't bring him glory? Friends, you're free to do whatever you want, but not everything's beneficial. You're free to do anything you want, but not everything's constructive. So I've got to ask the question, am I bringing glory to God with what I do? So I think first God, then others. Remember how Paul put it? He said, don't look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And then he writes it this way, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. 
So this is a radical look at how we live our lives. He says, I'm not a slave to anyone, but I realize that everyone is affected by my decisions. So I'm going to make decisions that first glorify God, second, help others. Because my life affects them. As you look in 1 Corinthians 10, and also as you look through the book of Romans, you see this, this, this perspective of one person being weak in an area, and one person being strong in an area. And in this area of food in 1 Corinthians, Paul is saying if somebody is weak in this area and they think it's wrong to eat that meat, don't serve the meat to them. If they think it's right to eat the meat, grill away. Because you're considering others' needs before your own. Like, let's get real practical. So one of the areas in my life where I am weak is with alcohol. It's one of the things that even as a believer in Jesus, I can't, ha- I can't have it in my house. If you've ever gone to lunch with me and you see how many Diet Cokes I drink, you know why I can't have alcohol in my house. In fact, my kids asked me that one day, Dad, why don't, you have any, why don't we have beer or wine like normal people? <laughs> What's wrong with it? And I said, have you, would you want me to drink beer and wine like I drink Diet Coke? Oh, no, Dad, that would be horrible. That would be so bad. Well, exactly. See, I'm weak in that area. Some of you are strong in that area. You can have a glass of wine or two, and it doesn't affect you. It doesn't master you. It doesn't alter you to the point where you are drunk or where you're mistreating others. You are strong in that area that I am weak. And because you understand where I'm weak, none of you have ever asked me to go get a beer. Right? I mean, you get it. That's why you've never asked me to go out for a drink, right? Because I'm weak in that area. Right? Well, that's one reason, pastor. But do you realize that you've got friends and you've got family members that are weak in areas like I'm weak in that one? And because they are weak, even if I'm strong, I will act weak in front of them. Because I don't want to harm them, I want to be a benefit to them. I don't want to hurt them, I want to be an encouragement to them. If you've got a friend on the low-carb diet, you're not taking them to Olive Garden, right? Because they are weak, you become weak. Do you see how it works? You're considering others above yourself so that you might win some and so that others might live a beneficial life, so that others won't be mastered by anything. It would be horrible to put a stumbling block out in front of our friends, It would be horrible to put a stumbling block out in front of somebody we love simply so we can live our freedom in Christ. It would be horrible. Listen to Paul's warning, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Be careful, however, that 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 the exercise of your rights, watch this. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Can you be so strong in your relationship with Jesus that in areas where other people are weak, you'll be weak with them? Can you be so strong in your relationship with Jesus Christ 
that you're going to consider others before you consider yourselves as you make decisions. First God, then others. Then lastly, self. In a world where we put ourselves first, in a world where we put our wants, needs, and desires above all else, even as Christians, the radical decision tree says God first, then others, lastly, self. And as he warned us earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, am I seeking only my own good? Is this only good for me? Well, then I probably need to revisit it to make sure that it glorifies God, to make sure that it's beneficial to the people around me. Paul says when you get this decision tree lived out right, you learn to walk in the rhythm of God first, people second, me last. That people can follow you and become more like Jesus, which was his goal in the end. It's his goal all along. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, follow my example as I follow Christ. When I find someone that goes God first, people second, themselves last, I will learn from them. I will listen to them. I will try and model my life after them because they are going to lead me to be more like Jesus. Where I'm strong and where I'm weak, they are going to lead me to be more like Jesus. As we keep studying First and Second Corinthians, there are going to be three radical decisions that Paul brings out that you and I can make today with this God first, people second, me last mentality. And the first radical decision we can make is to be radical in our repentance. You can fill in that blank. Because there are areas in our life where we are me first. There are areas in our life where we aren't glorifying God. There are areas in our life where we are hurting others with our bad decisions and bad patterns. What are you going to do in that area? Believer in Jesus Christ, what are you going to do? Well, Paul calls us to this radical repentance. And repentance is a change in mind that leads to a change in action. It's a change in your mind that leads to a change in how you live. It's a change in your mind that leads to a change in your lifestyle. He's going to call us to radical repentance. Listen to what he talks to us about as he looks at us getting clean before the Lord as believers with repentance. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So we are repenting of things radically that aren't pleasing to God in our life. I love the word Paul used here. It contaminates us, our body and our soul. We're radically repenting, not out of legalism that says, I can't do that, but out of a reverence for God that says, because he's in my life, I don't want to do that anymore. Not out of legalism that says, you got you to keep all the rules to make God happy. But I'm going to repent because God is changing me and has made me his kid. I'm going to repent radically. I'm going to grow in holiness when I see something that isn't in line with God's word and God's will for my life. I'm not just going to go, oh, I messed up there. Or, oh, that stinks. I'm going to get to work in that area. And I'm going to commit to God and say, God, I confess that what I did is wrong. And I commit to walk with you in this way. I commit to do these things. This is radical repentance. 
And some of you desperately need to apply radical repentance to your life. Because instead of being purified, your life is covered with regret. Instead of being cleansed, your life, even as a believer, is covered with regret. And Paul tells us why in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. You ever see somebody apologize, but they're not really apologizing? You know they're not really sorry for what they're saying they're sorry for? Well, that's worldly sorrow in this passage. And worldly sorrow doesn't bring what we want. Simply being sorry, simply feeling shameful, simply having guilt over an action that's been done isn't the whole picture. Because it says that this worldly sorrow continues the separation, continues the death, continues the hurt and the pain. But there's a godly sorrow. I'm not sorry I got caught. I'm sorry I did it. I'm not sorry that for any other reason than it breaks the heart of God. It breaks fellowship with him when I continue on in these broken patterns and these sinful ways. So godly sorrow, what does it bring? It brings repentance, a change in mind that leads to a change in life. When you are truly broken, hurt by your sin, it brings repentance that leads to you living a new life for God. Regretting is not the same as repenting. I can regret doing something all day long, but I haven't repented yet. I could confess something all day long, but I haven't repented yet. When I sin, and I do it regularly, just like the rest of you, don't look at me all spiritual. <laughs> when I sin, I try and confess it to God as quickly as possible. It's one of the marks of spiritual maturity. As soon as I know that I've done something that's sinful, I'm going to confess that to God. I'm going to agree with God that that's sin. But do you realize that my confession hasn't led to, to, to life change yet? Until I commit and I repent and I say, I'm not going to do that anymore. I can tell Christy I'm sorry a thousand times. But until I make a change in how I treat her, our relationship is going to repeat the same patterns in the past. Same is true with you and God. You can tell God you're sorry you sinned again and again and again and again. But until you get radical and repent instead of just confess, you'll continue to live with that regret. Repentance erases regret. Worldly sorrow brings nothing but regret. Godly sorrow brings repentance that erases regret. So number one, Radical decision for radical repentance. Last week I told you, there are two things people don't want to talk about in the church. They don't want to talk about sex and they don't want to talk about money. So last week I talked about sex. Well, there are two things that people don't want to talk about in church. And the good news is this week I'm not going to talk about sex. Because the second radical decision that Jesus calls us to through Paul's teaching to the Corinthian church is this, radical generosity. He was writing for a church that, to a church that was self-centered. He was writing to a church that was looking to consume in their gatherings, not to, to give and contribute to their gatherings. And so he's going to write to them about how they can grow in the grace of giving. 
And as you and I continue to grow in our relationship with God, we all can grow in the grace of giving. And Paul teaches us this through an agricultural word picture. He says that if you sow a lot of seed, you can expect to reap a lot of harvest. But if you sow a little seed, you should expect a little harvest. Now, everybody in his day and age would have been nodding their heads up and downs, just up and downs. I don't know what up and downs is. They would have been nodding their heads because it just makes sense. that If I sow a little, I'll reap a little. But he was going to use this agricultural word picture to teach us something about our generosity and our giving to God. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Just like it works in the field, it works with your faith. Just like it works in the garden, it works with God and our generosity. If I sow a little, I will reap a little. So then he goes on to tell us how we can sow a lot and reap a lot through generosity. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. When it comes to radical generosity, this is a conversation between you and God. Maybe it's that conversation that says, God, how can I glorify you first with my resources? God, how can I help others second with what you've given me? And God, would you continue to meet my needs third, even as I live generously? It's a conversation between you and God. And then when you give, he wants you to give gladly and cheerfully, willingly, not under compulsion, not out of obligation. When you give to the church, you're not giving to pay membership dues. When you give to the church, you're not giving to pay some fee for services rendered. When you give to the church, you're not tipping God. You're worshiping God. And that's why he wants you to worship through giving gladly and cheerfully and not under obligation. It's between you and him. It's always between you and him. So as you look at giving generously, radically, start with God. And then listen to the promise that he makes. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. See, Paul makes a promise to God's people. If you will learn how to be generous, and not just a little generous, but you will learn how to so much, you will reap much. And God, who is able to bless you abundantly, will bless you for every good work. This is spiritual math that doesn't make sense. Because many of us have trouble living on 100% let alone giving a percentage to God. Some people in our church set 10% as their goal for giving. And that goal for giving, that, that for some is sacrificial. And some of us look and say, Mike, I can't live on 100%. To be honest, I can't live on 103%. I use some credit cards. I can't live on 103%, so I most definitely can't live on 90, Mike. But see, there's that promise of God, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, that, that he will bless and he meets needs and he cares for us. One of the reasons that Paul would tell a consumeristic church that you need to give generously is to break the grip of greed on their life. And he says it to you and to me. Be generous and trust me. For some of you, 10% is a goal to strive for. And I encourage you to take a step 
towards giving to the Lord, whatever step that is. For some of you, 10% isn't even sacrificial anymore. And I encourage you to be radically generous. It's between you and God. But I encourage you to be radically generous as an act of worship unto the Lord. I've held on to the 100% before, and I've barely scraped by. And I've learned to grow in generosity. And this math that I can't fully comprehend, this radical decision that I can't fully make sense of, proves to be true again and again and again and again. I can trust God radically, even with my finances, because I can't outgive God. You believe that with His grace? Will you believe that with your generosity too? Radical repentance, radical generosity, and then last one, radical servanthood. And the mindset I want you to pick up here, and Paul was pressing it in to the Corinthian church, is that when you serve at church, you're not filling a spot. When you serve in the community, maybe you serve at the food bank, or maybe you help people who need clothes. Maybe, maybe you're filling in at work and you take a leadership position to help others and to benefit others. Wherever you are, you aren't just filling a spot. You are serving Jesus. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or wherever you work, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And wherever you're serving people, you're not volunteering to fill a spot. You are a servant of Jesus. You're a servant of God. And there's a promise that comes when we know that we're serving God and not serving man. There's a promise that comes when we know we're serving God, not just volunteering for an organization. There's a promise that comes when we know that I am a servant of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul says one area where I want you to go all in is in your service to the Lord. Whether that's through our church or in your kids' schools, or whether that's through our church or in our communities, whether that's through our church or in, in a place at work, I want you to go all in in serving Jesus where you're serving people. Because when you go all in fully for the work of the Lord, you can know that your work is not in vain. You can know that as you serve Jesus, God is at work in you and through you. As you serve Jesus, here's his promise. You will not be serving in vain because you're not serving men. I am serving Jesus. I hate it when people ask for me to volunteer for things because my wife makes me say yes. And then when we show up, they don't really need me. They don't really let me do anything. They don't really give me the freedom to do what needs to be done. So I just stand there grumpy, wondering why I showed up. Let me just tell you this. When you're serving Jesus, you will not have that feeling because you are not laboring in vain. You are laboring for the Lord and he is at work. You are laboring for the Lord and there's a place for you to make a difference. You are laboring for the Lord and it's worth it. So give yourself fully to the work of God wherever God is at work. So today, 
God first. People second. Me last. That is my radical decision tree. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for the chance to open your word and to learn and to grow together today. And Lord, I do thank you that every day of every week of every year, you're at work. So God, now I pray in this moment that you would help us to live out what we're learning. Help us to live out how we can make decisions for your glory to benefit others and that are constructive for ourselves. Lord, help us to make decisions differently so that we're pleasing to you and have a good reputation before people. God, help us to make decisions so that we might point people to Jesus and be a reflection of you instead of a distraction from you. As the church prays, if you've never believed in Jesus for life, the Bible says that he is Savior and Lord. He died on the cross for you. They buried him, and three days later, he was raised again from the dead to prove that he's God and to offer you both eternal life and the abundant life here on earth. And your response to the Savior and Lord is to believe. If you've never done that, believe that you're a sinner who needs a Savior and Jesus is your Savior. If you've never believed, let's take a moment and you can pray. These aren't magic words. It's just a way to express our faith to God. You can pray. Jesus, I believe. I believe that I'm a sinner who needs a Savior and you are the Savior of the world. Thank you for coming for me, for dying in my place and being raised again from the dead. Today, I believe. Thank you for giving me life. 